In the year 1886, there was a man named David H. McConnell who was a door-to-door salesman selling books. And with a desire to lure in female customers, he offered, with the books he was selling, little gifts of perfume. Well, it didn't take long before the perfume gifts and samples that he was giving away became more popular than the books that he was selling. And so he realized the profitability of that and started the California Perfume Company that would soon after that change its name to Avon, something that you may uh, be aware of or be familiar with. Now, each one of us has been involved with or heard of things that have begun as one thing, but then morphed into or changed into over time something totally different than what the initial intentions were of what that uh, purpose was. Uh, Lamborghini Automotive, the the car uh, manufacturer that produces those souped-up sports cars, actually started selling tractors made out of surplus World War II parts and then became what they are today. Nintendo, the game console uh, system uh, company, um, started in 1889 uh, selling Japanese playing cards. And uh, IBM, which is something that we're all familiar with, uh, started kind of in the early 1900s as a merger of three smaller companies um, that produced employee timekeeping machines, uh, weighing scales, meat slicers, and coffee grinders. And then, you know, through the process of change and time uh, and innovation, it became what we know it as today. But it is, for all of us, an amazing thing to watch what time and human culture can change about an organization or a structure, something that's been put in place. Well, it's possible for that same type of change to take place in a godly institution as well. And in our last segment of Luke that we studied last week, we saw something small but hugely significant take place in the early days of the ministry of Jesus. We saw Jesus teaching in a house And as he was there, we were told that the Pharisees and the doctors of the law were there present from all quarters of the land of Israel and that they were there for the purpose of evaluating Jesus, his ministry, and the things that he was teaching. But what we learned is that the evaluation that those religious rulers and leaders were bringing was not an evaluation of substance and worth, but rather they were there to measure the influence and the level of threat to their establishment and their authority. And so that marked the beginning of Jesus' conflict with the religious establishment of his day that will ultimately culminate in him hanging upon a cross just three and a half years into his ministry. Now the irony of that is not that it happened with the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious rulers of the day, but it lies in what the Pharisees initially started out to be and what they were at their inception. After the Jews were carried away into captivity four, five hundred, six, seven hundred years before the first coming of Christ, when they came back into the land, they realized that the reason why they went through that captivity was because of their disobedience to the law and the commandments of God. And so the sect of the Pharisees was started at that time 
as more or less a preservation agent to keep Israel from ever losing their status and their position in the land again. But what they did is that they took the law of Moses, which was God's standard of authority and morality for the people, and they embellished, they interpreted, and they expanded what that law was to make it something totally other than what God initially intended. And what happened over time is that they left off the business of preserving morality and they got into the process of enforcing righteousness or making people to obey. They more or less became the God squad that got into everyone else's business and they lost track of what it is that they initially started out as or what they began to do. And so the last part of Luke chapter 5 that we study tonight and then into the beginning of chapter 6, we'll hopefully make it through verse 11 of chapter 6 tonight, we're going to see Jesus address this religious group of people specifically on account of three issues that they have with him. And their, their, their issues that they have with Jesus are, first of all, his doctrine, which we looked at last week, was the forgiveness of sins. And then second of all, the company that he's keeping is he will be one that will eat and keep company with sinners and that will bother them. And then third of all, his behavior and especially as it concerns uh, their tradition and the Sabbath days. And so uh, we read it, we pick up in verse 27 now with the second uh, of these inc- uh, incidences that Jesus had with the Pharisees um, and we begin with the calling of Matthew. And so verse 27 of chapter 5, it says that after these things, he, that's Jesus, went forth and he saw a publican, that's a tax collector or tax gatherer, named Levi, and that we understand from Matthew's gospel that it is Matthew who is the author of the gospel of Matthew. And so we'll call him Matthew from here on out for clarity's sake. Sitting at the receipt of custom or the tax table. And he said unto him, follow me. And he, Matthew, left all, stood up and followed him. And Matthew made a great feast in his own house And there was a great company of publicans, other tax collectors, and of others that sat down with them. And so we're told now that Jesus leaves the place, the house, where he had healed the man who was lowered down through the roof and the episode where his sins had been forgiven and then he had been healed. And Jesus goes from there and as he's walking with disciples, we're told that he sees a tax collector who's sitting at the table where taxes uh, are received because it's the duty of the people to pay their taxes to Rome. Now, understand right off the bat that a tax collector who is Jewish and whose name is Levi Uh, is a man who is absolutely hated by all of the Jewish people that are citizens paying taxes in that day. And he's hated for for three reasons. The first reason that Matthew would be absolutely hated by them is because of the fact that he is wealthy, but not just the fact that he's wealthy, but the reason for his wealth. Because the tax collectors were known as being very dishonest people. The way that they would make their money is that they would meet a quota that was laid upon them by Rome that they had to levy from the people. But anything that they were able to extract from the multitude of the people over and above and beyond that, they could keep for themselves. And so they became experts at finding little fees and ways that they could get more money out of the people than what the people actually owed. And so they would be hated by the people. 
The second reason they would be hated is because they were seen as defectors. Rome was not a friend of Israel, and the Israelites were not pleased with the fact that they were being occupied by an outside entity. And so for a Jewish man to be employed by the empire of Rome to gather taxes on their behalf would be an affront and an offense to the Jewish nationalist who wanted the sovereign state of Israel to exist within itself. And so he would be hated for that purpose. And then third of all, because most likely Matthew was a Levite. His name was Levi. He would come from the tribe of Levi. And what that meant is that not only did he defect from his Jewish tradition, but he also defected from a calling that was upon his life from birth to be a part of the priesthood. And so he left a calling to serve God for the sake of serving Rome. And so that would be seen as a double affront. And so everything about this man, Levi, would be an offense and a stench in the minds of all those Israelites that were there in the land in those days. But we're told that when Jesus saw this man, Levi, or walks by, that he saw him. And whenever Jesus sees something or that the scripture points out that Jesus sees something, it's so much more than just a glance. It isn't as though Jesus is just walking by and he happens to see a man who's dressed a little bit differently than everybody else or uh, in a position. But, but it says that when Jesus saw him, what it means is that he perceived him or that he looked him through and through or discerned him or contemplated him. And every time Jesus does that, you can rest assured that Jesus is seeing something far different than what everyone else is seeing when they look at something. And that is almost always true of Jesus in every sense and in everything that he saw. He saw almost the complete opposite of what everybody else saw when they looked at something. When a mountain would come into view. Everyone else would see an obstacle or something that had to be scaled. Jesus would see a skipping stone. When everybody else would come upon a body of water, they would gear up and they would either grab their swimming suit or a boat because it was something that needed to be passed. Jesus would grab his walking shoes because he saw the water as something completely different as everyone else. When everyone else saw a donkey, they would just look at it and they would see a stupid farm animal. But when Jesus would look at a donkey, he would see a royal chariot and something worthy of a king's uh, um, initiation to a nation. And when everyone else would see a man, what they would see is everything that that man was outwardly and what everyone put upon that man in his labels or because of his profession or because of his background and his identity would be branded upon him by everyone else but what Jesus would see when he would see a man is he would see something way deep inside and he would see the value of something that no one else can see and not in that what they were, but he would always see what he was able to make them. And so Jesus looks at this man, Matthew, who's sitting at the received custom. He sees him and he sees him in a totally different way than anyone had ever seen Matthew before. And his response to what he saw in him is that he gave him a call and an ultimatum. And he said, follow me. And it's a very simple, very concise, very quick word that is going to uh, require a very quick decision in it. Now, what Jesus knows about Matthew when he calls him this way and says, follow me, is that he knows, first of all, all that he can do in Matthew's life. Only Jesus knows that. He sees Matthew not as what he is, but what he will be when Jesus is done with him. And Jesus is aware of that at that very first moment. 
Jesus also knows when he looks at Matthew what it is that Matthew was ultimately created for by God before he was even born. And only Jesus knows that, not just about Matthew, but about everyone uh, that's ever lived. Only God knows exactly what it is that you and I have been made for. Not even you know exactly what it is that you've been made for. That's for you to discover as you find your identity in him. But Jesus knows that as he looks at Matthew. And then third, what Jesus knows is that he knows without controversy that what Jesus has in mind for Matthew is better than what Matthew could ever have in mind for himself. And he knows all of those things at the first moment that he looks at Matthew and says, follow me. Now, what does Matthew know? Matthew knows this. He knows that there's something that's legitimate about Jesus. He knows that when he's seeing this man walk by and he's hearing the words that are coming out of his mouth, that he's in the presence of something that's far different than anything that he's ever heard, seen, or been around before. He knows automatically that Jesus is better than the Jewish custom uh, and the Jewish principles of his day. And we know that because Matthew already left that. He was willing to forsake his roots as an Israelite in order to, uh, you know, kind of throw in his lot with Rome. And so he knows automatically that Jesus is better than the Jews. He also knows that Jesus is better than Rome. He's he's had that. He's tasted everything that comes with that identity. And so he knows as he looks at him that Jesus is better. He also knows this. He knows that to obey what Jesus is asking him to do is going to cost him dearly. That what he's asking is going to come at a cost. That for him to stand up and leave the place where he's seated there is going to cost him everything that he is presently. And Matthew also knows that right now the ball is in his court. That Jesus has given him an ultimatum and now it's his choice of whether or not he's going to stay seated and hang on to his worldly identity and what he is or whether he's going to leave it behind and he's going to follow Jesus. But we're told in the text that when Matthew heard those words, follow me, it says that he left all, rose up, and followed him. And I want you to notice the order in which it says those words. It says that he left all and then he rose up. That means that the forsaking of all happened inside before there was ever an act or a step or a movement that was taken. Before one calorie was burned in the following of Jesus physically, there was a decision that was made in his mind that he was willing to forsake everything that he had been or ever was in order to follow Jesus. And that's always the way it is, is that the leaving of all happens in the heart and in the mind before it ever happens with the feet. Now, what I believe, sadly, is that this is the part that is lacking today in many of the people we see that are making decisions or that are converting uh, to Christ, is that there's a lacking of the leaving all part of the deal. Now, when Jesus calls a sinner to repentance, and and, and by the way, we've got to understand that, that that is what Jesus is calling when he calls us. He is calling a sinner to repentance. He is looking at us and he sees what we are and he's calling us to that place of turning away from our sin and to come to him for the sake of salvation. But that's what he's calling us to. He is not asking us to let him into our lives. He is asking us to leave our lives and to come into his. And that is that he isn't willing to leave his place for us. He already did that. He did it once. He's not going to do it again. 
But what he's doing is he's asking us to leave our place and to join him or to come to his. And the meaning of that is that he is becoming the Lord of our lives when we give our lives to him. And so I follow him and my allegiance is to him. And so it's forsaking the path and the identity that I once had in the world or that I was and is throwing in my entire life with him and embracing the identity and the path that he gives for me. Jesus called himself a door. He said, I am the door. And the very fact that he said that indicates that there's an entering into something and a leaving of something. When we pass through a doorway, we're stepping out of one room and we're stepping into another. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we're walking through a door and there's a change of location from where we were to where we're going. Jesus called himself a path. He said, I am the way. The way is a path. It's something that we walk upon. And so the implication is that if we're going to walk the path that he is, then that means that we're changing from the path that we're on and walking onto the path that he's calling us into. If they were one and the same, then Jesus wouldn't have called himself a path. He would have said, just keep going the way that you're going and I'll come and walk with you and everything will be okay. But he doesn't do that. He says, I am the way and he invites us to join that way, meaning to leave the one that we're on. And he called himself a life. He said, I am the life. And what do you know about a life is that a life is all consuming. A life means every single part of what we are and what we do, past, present, and future, all of it is encompassed in what we would call a life. And when we have a memorial service or we remember someone, we talk about the the full context of their life. And so what Jesus is calling people into is a life that is completely consumed with him. And that is why the Bible says that our God is, is a consuming fire. Because to come and follow him means that he will absorb and consume every area of our lives and put it under his lordship. And that's what we are called into. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, when I got saved, which was back in the the, the late summer, early fall of 1998, I knew a couple of things. There was a lot of things that I didn't know. I had no idea what I was getting into in the grand context of things. But at that moment where I stood in a sense, or as it were, at a precipice of life, and I had to decide, am I going to go the way of the world and continue in the spiral that I'm in? Or am I going to leave it and follow Christ? I knew a few things, absolutely and for sure. I knew that if I walked through the door of Jesus with my life, that I could take absolutely no baggage with me. I don't know how I knew that, but I knew it. I knew that there was nothing of my old life that I was going to be able to take into my life with Christ. That in a sense, it was like going through security at an airport where you come and you put everything that you have, everything on your person, you put it on the conveyor belt and you walk through that door and you go from one side into the other, and you go with absolutely nothing at all. And, and, I, and I knew that. And you need to know that, that when you come to Christ, that's the way you come. Nothing can come with you into the other side. And, and the difference between airport security and Christ is that when you put everything on the conveyor belt, the only things that you get back are the things that he gives you. If he says, no, no, this is coming out of your life. It's coming out of your life. It might not come that day. You might resist. You might fight. You might kick. But let me tell you something. If you're going to continue and you're going to follow with Christ and he says this is coming out of your life, it's coming out of your life. And you're better off to give it to him there than to have him wrestle it out of your hand because it's a much harder process. Uh, It hurts more, you know, but he's going to win because he will be the Lord of our lives. 
I knew for a fact when I came to Christ, I knew that my life was going to change. I knew that I wasn't just bringing Jesus into what I was presently, but I knew that he was going to become the Lord of all that I would be from that day forever and that that would mean that there would be a change in my life. I also knew personally that I was coming to Christ and that I was not coming to church. There was no church. I didn't get saved in a church. I didn't go to a church service and hear the gospel message. My salvation was the result of people around me that got saved and then shared the gospel with me. So when I made that decision and I put my faith in Jesus Christ, there was no church. I was coming to Christ and not to religion. And I knew that that's what I was coming to. But at the same time, I knew internally that he wanted me in church. That that was a part of what I was doing. It was just there. It was something that I was looking through the doorway and right there on the other side of the door, I just knew for a fact that that was part of the deal. It's part of what he wanted. And I was right because it says it uh, in his word. And I knew right on the first day, I knew the, the first things in my life that were going to change. I knew it. I knew the things, just like all of you, if you've put your faith in Christ, you know the things that he said right off the bat that you knew as soon as you walk through that door, he's about to, he's not giving this back on the other side of the conveyor belt. These things are going to change within my life. But here's the point is that when we come to Jesus, we are not adding Christ to what we are and saying, well, I've accepted Christ, but rather we're forsaking all like Matthew did and we're following him and embracing his way. And the reason why we see so many people today that make a profession for Christ, but then they just fall by the wayside and nothing ever comes of that profession is is because they don't forsake all. They, They seek to accept Christ, but they want him to come into their life. And I'll tell you something about God is that he doesn't like small houses. And for God to come into my life is for me to bring God into a very crampy and confined and quite frankly, dirty space that he is not interested in being in, but the privilege of what he's calling me to is to come out of my house and to come into his, and that is a much more glorious dwelling place. But if I don't want to do that, then my destiny is that, well, I haven't really followed Christ. I've embraced perhaps a fear of hell, but I have not embraced a living Savior. Now, what impresses me about Matthew is this, is that when I came to Christ, personally me, I gave up nothing. I mean, I I was like at the bottom of death (laughs) and he saved me there. And I gave up nothing to come to him. I gave up a future that I was certain would be miserable. Matthew, on the other hand, not so much. I mean, Matthew had an incredible income. He was a man of great wealth. We know that by the banquet that he set for Jesus. He gave up a position that was privileged and hard to get. It was prestigious in that sense. But he gave that up because he counted what he would gain in Christ to be of far greater value. And I believe that if you asked Matthew, even on the first day, what he gave up to follow Christ, his answer would be, I gave up nothing. And when you hold side by side what Matthew had and what he will gain eternally, there's no comparison between the two. His name is one of the 12 names that are in the foundations of heaven itself. How do you put a value on that? Now think about it in your own context. You say, well, what do I have to give up if I come to Christ? Don't even think about what you have to give up. Whatever you give up to come to Christ, it will be worth it in the long run. And when you see someday and understand what it is that you've gotten by leaving off what you were and coming to him, there's no comparison between the two. And so Matthew then shows appreciation to Jesus by throwing this feast in Jesus' honor and he invites all of his friends uh, in the thing. And what we learn as we move on is that they were not the greatest company 
uh, of people that Matthew invited to it. And it really initiates the second rift that Jesus has with the Pharisees now. Um, the first one being his words and now this one being his company, who he hangs around with and, uh, and, and, and the people and, and um, the type of people that they were. And so as we pick up now in verse 30, we see uh, the scribes and the Pharisees challenge Jesus about it. It says, but their scribes and Pharisees, that is the scribes and Pharisees of Matthew's guests, murmured against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said unto him, well, why do thy disciple or the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And he said unto them, can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. And so the same scribes and Pharisees that had given Jesus a problem in the house in the previous segment now see him in the house of Matthew and the people that he's keeping company with there and they begin to murmur about the fact that Jesus is sitting in their company and the result of that murmuring is that they ask two questions. The first question that they ask is why do you mingle with liberal and immoral people? And the second question is why don't you look and act like us in your spiritual disciplines? We don't like the company that you're keeping. It's given us a bad name. And we don't like the things that you're doing uh, when we hear about the way that you're walking and living, even when you're not with these people, because your spiritual practices and prayers and fastings and everything don't line up and mesh with what we do and what we think a good Jewish person would do. And so Jesus answers these questions, and he answers the first one by giving to them an analogy. And he gives them an analogy of a physician. And he says that they that are whole or well have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. So likewise, so just like that, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so he likens himself in this analogy unto a physician. And the idea is, what kind of people would you expect to see around a physician? And I hope it's sick people. Because what other purpose does a physician have if a physician isn't hanging around sick people and hopefully making them well? So if a physician is called to help sick people, then it stands to reason that a savior exists to save sinners. And so if a physician is around the sick, then why wouldn't a savior be around sinners? And it's a very practical thing that Jesus gives them as an argument. But with that answer comes a very clear indictment upon the Pharisees. And the indictment is this, that what do we call a doctor who cannot help six people? And the answer is a quack. You know, if a doctor doesn't help the sick, then he's not worth his money. And so a spiritual leader who can't bring a person to repentance or salvation is worthless. And in a sense, that's exactly what he's calling the Pharisees and the scribes and the doctors of the law that are there, is that if you are not those that are bringing sick people or sinner, sinful people into a place of repentance, then you are absolutely worthless in your spiritual leadership. 
And the reason why they were worthless in their spiritual leadership, the Pharisees, was because that they had forgotten the character and the mission of God. And that was to heal and to restore. That's the reason why God created people in the first place. And it's the reason why he sent Christ into the world to reveal that his heart was to care and to heal and to restore. And the Pharisees had forgotten it. The second answer that Jesus gives, which is to the other question of why Jesus doesn't look like them in the way that he practices his Judaism or his religion, is he gives to them an analogy of a bridegroom hanging out with all of uh, the, the company of men, the best man and all of the groomsmen that uh, are there. And he says that when the bridegroom is with the groomsmen, then that is an indication that there's a wedding feast that's about to take place. And that is not a time when you would be somber and fasting and and afflicting yourselves, but rather that's a time for rejoicing. But if for some reason the bridegroom was suddenly taken away, it would change the whole demeanor of things. And then there would be fasting and the affliction uh, of souls and the whole thing. I actually read this article that I think illustrates um, what this would be like uh, if you can put yourself in this scene. But this actually happened. It says that a bride in India married a guest at her wedding after the original groom fell ill during the nuptials. The 25-year-old groom uh, and the 23-year-old bride were about to perform the ritual exchange of garlands at their wedding ceremony. By the way, this happened this year, so this isn't even old news. It says, when the groom suffered an epileptic fit, the Times of India reported. The groom fell to the ground and was soon rushed to a nearby hospital. The unexpected event enraged the bride who felt cheated that the groom and his family had concealed uh, the, the groom's health issues from her and prompted her to dump him on the spot. She declared she would marry any person among the guests who was willing to accept her as his wife. A man from the gathering quickly obliged and the couple exchanged garlands and completed the rituals necessary to officially become husband and wife. And then, you know, the article goes on to talk about the fight that broke out between the two families and how ultimately it was resolved uh, peacefully in, in the whole thing. But if you can imagine for one minute you're in that scene and you are that bridegroom or you're in the company of that groomsman and to see exactly what that happened, all of a sudden the bridegroom's taken away in an ambulance, the bride marries someone else, and all of a sudden you're watching TV instead of attending a wedding, um, perhaps exciting to the guests but a grieving thing for the groom and his family. And that's uh, what Jesus says. Uh, That was free. (laughs) There was really no application at all, but it was just too good of an article (laughs) to pass up. But here's the point. Is that a wedding is a means of celebration. Is that when we have a wedding and there's a joining of two that were, were once two and now they are becoming one, then that is not a time for somberness, but it's a time for celebration. And so if Jesus, who in the analogy is the groom, is being reunited with his people, which are the bride, the Bible calls us the bride, then that means that Jesus' presence in the world means the reuniting of God and his people, and that's a reason for celebration. And that's why Jesus says there's not a whole lot of fasting or somberness or all kind of uh, religious ritual things going on right now because this is a time of rejoicing and all of the rest. And that's why I don't look like you in the things that I'm doing. But then Jesus goes on and he gives to them two parables that illustrate the reason why he is different from them and the reason why he is not one of them. And understand this, that's their issue. 
That's their problem. He's not one of them. He's not from the sect of the Pharisees. He hasn't come up through the school of the scribes. And so they're angry at him because he's got authority from God, but he's not a part of their system. And so Jesus answers the question without them asking as to why that is. Why am I not a Pharisee? Why am I not part of your system? And he says this in verse 36. It says that he also spoke a parable unto them and he said, no man puts a piece of a new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new, the new piece of cloth makes a tear and the piece that was taken out of the new agrees not with the old. In other words, if you have an old garment and you put a patch of new material to fix a hole that's not shrunk, then when that new piece of fabric shrinks, it's going to tear away from the old and the initial tear will be made worse by your attempted fix of the thing. And then he he illustrates again, verse 37. He says, and no man puts new wine into old bottles or it should be wine skins. Else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled and the bottles will perish. In those days, the way that they would store wine while it fermented is they wouldn't use glass vessels, but they would use skins of animals and they would be sewn together and they would make uh, containers out of them. But it was essential that if you were fermenting new wine that you used fresh new skins. And the reason for that is that as the wine would ferment, gases would be released, there would be an expansion, there would be a movement of the the fluid of the thing, and the bottles needed to have some veracity. They had to be able to move around. Otherwise, if they were already dried and rigid, then when the wine expanded, it would burst the bottles and your whole process would be flushed down the tubes. You would have nothing left to show for it. So Jesus says, new wine must be put into new bottles and both are then preserved. But then he caps it off by saying, no man also having drunk old wine right away desires new, for he says that the old is better. So Jesus gives to them two parables, one concerning fabric, and the other concerning wineskins. And both of these two parables have three things in common, relationship, renewal, and change. And the relationship is this, is that there's a relationship between the garment, the pair of pants, if you would, and the owner of the pants. The garment doesn't exist except to be worn by someone else. It doesn't exist for itself. And in that, that garment takes on a dynamic. You know what it's like. You go and you buy a new shirt or you buy a new pair of pants. And there's a break-in period. You put it on for the first time, you're like, oh, this is kind of tight. It doesn't really fit right. But a relationship begins. You begin to move around. You wear it for a day. You stretch it out a little bit. Then you wash it. It shrinks a little bit. You put it on again. It becomes formed. It shrinks, so to speak, a little bit, but it conforms to your movements and your body shape and what you are. And we all know what it's like to have a favorite pair of pants or a favorite uh, couple of shirts, things that we just say, there's something about when I wear that, it just fits me right. And there's a relationship that is established between the owner of the, 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 the material and the material itself. But understand this, is that the fabric or the pants are an immaterial object. They exist solely and only to cover the person who is the owner, but nevertheless, there's a relationship there. Same thing with the skins. There's a relationship between the wine skins and the wine itself. And when the wine seasons, 
there's an expansion that happens, and once the skins are set, they can't be stretched again, and thus you can't recycle those bottles, and so there's a relationship that exists solely between that substance of wine and that particular skin that the wine is in. But understand this, that the skins are not the value. The skin is simply the container or the house that holds the thing that's of value. The living substance in the parable is the wine. And so there is relationship. It also speaks of renewal. And that is in this context. Is that if you want to try to recycle or preserve styles or containers from previous generations or previous harvest seasons, then you better take care how you do it. Because clothing and containers don't last forever. We all know what that's like, don't we? When all of a sudden your favorite pair of pants now tears a hole in the knee or in the seat, you know, as happens from time to time, and things begin to wear out. And all of a sudden now, if I want to try to fix that, I've got to be careful how I do it because I'm in danger if I do it the wrong way or if I introduce the wrong material or the wrong substance in the whole thing then I've got a problem. And so I've got to be careful if I'm going to seek to bring renewal to something that's old. And then the third common ground between the two is the change. And here's the point of the parables and why Jesus gives them to the people. And it's this, is that when new life or a new generation comes and God is going to meet with that generation or with that new life, then he's not going to recycle the old means and methods whereby he met with previous generations, but he's going to meet with each new generation and really with each new person in his own unique way. And so each generation will be met by God according to the needs and the placement of that generation in their time in world history. Now, Psalm 145 verse 4 says this. It says that one generation will declare thy works or praise thy works unto the next. And that is our job, is that we are to declare what God has done in our generation and in our lives to our kids. But what we can never hand off to our kids is the relationship that God wants to have only with them. We can tell them how God met with us and they can see a living example of how we relate to God but it's up to God to meet with them afresh and to do something in their generation according as he will. And here's the application of what Jesus is saying to them and ultimately to us, is that a fresh movement of God will not be poured out upon an existing movement. Did you hear that? A fresh movement of God will not be poured out upon an existing movement. God will not be confined to a method. And that's what is in our human nature is that we want to take God and we want to confine him to a method of doing things. Well, if we want God to move, then we sing four or five songs. We have a 57-minute Bible study or 67-minute Bible study. And then we sing another song. We stand up. We go home. And that's what we have to do if we want God to move. Not so. That may be the way that God deals with us or with a particular music style or with, uh, you you know, a particular um, environment or a particular look or a particular type of building. And God might move in a certain way, but that doesn't mean that that's always the way that God moves. And here's the reason why God changes the way that he moves. Now, wait, let me say something. He does not change who he is. He does not change the substance of his truth. 
He does not change his standards and his ways. Those things are set because those things are God. That's who he is. He doesn't change. But the way that he demonstrates or brings those things to a particular people or generation, the expression of that can look vastly different between two groups of people. One group can appreciate traditional organ music. Another can appreciate heavy metal. And God can move just as powerfully through metal music as he can through hymnology. He can move however he wants to. That's his prerogative. But the reason he will not pour upon an existing movement is because when when we ask him to, we're asking him to do something where there's no room for him to conform its model to the new generation. Now think about this. What if Jesus had succumbed or had conformed to their system. It would have happened that he would not have been allowed to do anything. His hands would have been tied. He would have been completely restricted to to their system. No one would have been reached and every bit of his energy and time would have gone to figuring out the politics of, 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 of how things are going to get done. Well, this is your territory. And you're in Galilee. You can't be down in Jerusalem. And who do you think you are trying to reach Samaritans? We don't reach Samaritans. It, it, the whole thing would have been a, a complete waste of time had he done it. But Jesus does acknowledge in his giving of the parable that it is human nature that no one who tastes new wine immediately says this is better. They always say that the old is better. And that's just a fact of human nature. That when God begins to move in a new way that we're not used to, because it's not the way that God met with us, our nature is to say, eh, it's invalid. It doesn't count. God doesn't wear skinny jeans and... You know, that, that's, that's just, you shouldn't have that in church or, you know, that, that's just not the way God is. That's wrong. No, no, that is the way God is because he will meet with each generation where they are at. He will bring them into a sanctified state of communion with himself, but he is still God and he will meet them the way that he wants. Now, for you and I, it's important that we understand that our Christianity must never become about a form and that it must always remain about a relationship. And the moment our Christian experience becomes a form and a method, and we leave off Jesus and intimacy and reality with Jesus, then we begin to die. And it can happen. It can happen to anyone. It can happen to a movement, but more danger is that it can happen to an individual. And I always think of the church in Ephesus that Jesus wrote to in Revelation chapter 4. They were spot on with their form but he looked at that church and he said you're in danger of losing my presence not because your doctrine or your form is wrong but because you've left your first love relationship took a back seat to method and the danger is that they were about to die and so for you and i the exhortation and the warning is stay close to jesus And don't worry about the outward or the form and the whole thing. It happened to the Pharisees, but the dangerous thing is that it can happen uh, to us. Well, Jesus then goes on, and now he has his third instance with the the Pharisees in the beginning of chapter 6, and it really concerns now um, his behavior, and specifically as it concerns his relation to the Sabbath day and their traditions. Notice what it says in chapter 6, verse 1. It says that it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. 
And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not read so much as this, what David did when he was hungry and they which were with him? How he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave also to those that were with him, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests alone. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of uh, the Sabbath day. And so we're told that it's on another Sabbath and it happens to be two weeks after um, the, the time that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And it says that as they were walking through the fields, that his disciples began to pick the grains of wheat that were now coming into a state of ripeness. And they were threshing or breaking the chaff off of the heads of wheat within their fingers and they were beginning to eat the wheat that they had just pulled with their hands. And when the Pharisees, and who only knows how they got into the field or why they were there or what they were doing in the field at that particular moment, close enough to be able to see this taking place, they come to Jesus and they say, why is it that your disciples are doing something that is absolutely not acceptable to be doing according to the law on the Sabbath day? Now understand that the Sabbath or the law of the Sabbath was a law that had been given through Moses wherein the people were not allowed to labor one day out of the seven each week. And that day would be the Sabbath each week. But before Moses made it a law, God had made it a principle. The Bible says that God created the world in six days, but that on the seventh day he rested from all of his labor. And he didn't rest because he was exhausted. He rested for the sake of enjoyment. It was for the sake of looking at all that he had done and accomplished for those six days. And then he left off that labor and he enjoyed it for that one day of rest. Understand this also, that the first full day of Adam's existence was a day of rest. He was created on the sixth day. And his first full day was the Sabbath day. Therefore, he went into life in a state of rest, or the Sabbath day it was observed. And God made it a principle from the very beginning that man labors for six days, and then he has one day then to rest and to be refreshed and enjoy the fruit of his labor. Now, under the law, they were not permitted to work. In other words, they didn't have the right or the liberty to say, well, I don't want to take one day, and so I'm just going to work all seven. They couldn't do that. They had to do it. However, they were allowed to eat on the Sabbath day. And though they weren't allowed to harvest their field, the poor were always allowed to go through the fields and pluck a grain of corn at the corners of the field and to be able to provide for them food because they had no other way of eating food. And so God made provision for them to do that in the law. Now here's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees took the law of the Sabbath, which was laid out in simplicity, and they made it so complicated that no one could follow it. I mean, they literally split hairs down to a T. They said, well, if you take more than 2,000 steps on the Sabbath day, then that's considered work. So you've got to keep it under 2,000. But if you attach a rope between the two places that you're walking and you hang on to that rope, then that's only considered one step. So you, could, you actually could take more if you plan ahead and you connect the place with ropes. You can't toss an article to another person because that would be thrusting. That's considered work, but you can hand it to them. So if your neighbor has to borrow a broom and they live on a balcony that's adjacent to yours, you can hand them the broom across, but you can't toss it. If you do that, that's a violation of the Sabbath. 
They were not, and this is true, allowed to spit on the Sabbath day, except it were on a rock, because it's possible that the spit would roll in the dirt and cause a furrow, and that would be considered plowing. And so they weren't allowed to spit. It's true, it's in the Mishnah, it's in the Talmud, on the Sabbath day. They considered picking wheat, harvesting, threshing, or breaking the chaff off as threshing, and then to eat it would be considered a breaking of the harvest. And what they had done with the Sabbath is that they had made it so complicated that in order for them to observe the Sabbath, they needed more education to learn what they weren't allowed to do on Friday than they needed to do their job the rest of the rest of the week. And so it had become so complicated. And so Jesus' response to this indictment, why are they doing what's not lawful, is that he doesn't argue with them. He doesn't tell them that they're foolish for the things that they're thinking, but rather he just explains and he uses David as an illustration, saying that don't you remember what David did when he was hungry in the days of Abiathar? And he had nothing to eat. And he went into the temple and he asked for bread. And the only bread that they had was the showbread, which was not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. But David was given the showbread and David was justified. And the reason David was justified is because human need supersedes ceremonial law as it concerns the Sabbath day. And David was justified in this thing. The Sabbath is not a day to deprive appetites, but a day to satisfy appetites. And these are God-given appetites, and so therefore they're to be fulfilled. And Jesus then declares himself to be the Lord also of the Sabbath, meaning that he has the right in himself to declare and set the boundaries for what is legal and what is not upon the Sabbath day. Well, then the second snapshot uh, comes and it concerns a man with a withered hand. And it says in verse six, it says this, it says that it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, that's Jesus, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. And then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, and Matthew's gospel tells us that he was angry, he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And they, the Pharisees, were filled with madness, and they communed one with another what they might now do to Jesus. And so the second snapshot concerning this man with the withered hand on another Sabbath, it tells us that he was there in the synagogue. Now, Was he planted by the Pharisees for this very purpose? Or was he simply observed that he came to church each week? We don't know. But what we do know is that the scribes and the Pharisees that were there immediately noticed this man who was sitting there with a withered hand. And they used this man with a withered hand as an occasion to trap Jesus because they knew something about Jesus. And what they knew about Jesus is that his attention would be immediately drawn to the person in the room that had the greatest need. And they would use the grace that Jesus brought as an opportunity to find fault with him concerning something that he might do on the Sabbath days. Well, it tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. 
that he perceived that that's what they were thinking concerning this man. And Matthew again tells us that it angered him inside because they cared more about their traditions and his observance of those traditions than they cared about a man who needed to be healed. And so Jesus calls him right there on the carpet and he looks at the man and he tells him to stand up in the midst. Now put yourself in the shoes of that man for one moment. You came to church that day. What were you hoping for? Certainly it was so that everyone could look at the fact that you're crippled in the midst of everyone else who is whole, right? But he must have felt safe when he heard what Jesus said. And he must have felt confident that something good was about to take place because he obliges Jesus and in the middle of a synagogue, and you know that the synagogue was crowded because at this point in Jesus' ministry, everywhere that Jesus goes, it's crowded. And this man stands up in the midst of them all and there's a hush as Jesus looks around at them all and he asks them the question and he says, is it lawful to do what is right or to do what is evil on the Sabbath day? And then he set his eyes steadfastly on this man and then he said the unthinkable. He said, stretch forth your hand. Now that's a powerful statement. And again, if you put yourself in the shoes of the man, Put yourself in the shoes of anyone who's sitting there in the audience that day. They would be thinking, is he out of his mind? Of course that man, if he could stretch out his hand, he would have done it a thousand times. Doesn't he know that that man has obviously tried to stretch out his hand every day of his life and he can't stretch it out? There's a crippled uh, structure in it. It's impossible for him to do it. Perhaps the man himself is thinking to himself, like, what what in the world are you trying to prove in, in all of this? Do you just want to make an open spectacle of me? Is that your agenda and your purpose? Am I now become the intermediary between your conflict with the Pharisees? Why are you doing this to me? I can't stretch out my hand and excuses could have begun to roll off. But it tells us that he did so. It says that he lifted up his hand and for the 10,000th and one first time, he sought to stretch out his hand. And as soon as he did, It says that it was made completely whole as the other. And understand this, Christian, that God will never command anyone to do something except that he will also provide them with the power to do it, no matter how impossible it might be. And that means that for every area of our lives that is withered, for everything that we sit here with tonight, and that we don't want anyone else to see, and that we certainly wouldn't want brought to the attention of a whole crowd of people in in the middle of a church service. Those areas of our lives that have long since been withered, where we've even given up trying to straighten them out. That if Jesus Christ looks at you tonight and he says, stretch out your hand in that area of your life, then he is completely capable and able to make that area of your life whole and to make it function as it should. And So you might sit here tonight and you have a withered work ethic. And you say, no matter how much, I just can't bring myself to to, to have drive when it comes to what I'm called to do in my daily life. If Jesus says, stretch out your hand, then he's able to empower the work ethic. You might say, I have a withered devotional life or a withered prayer life. And he might look at you and say, stretch out your hand. As you set forth to obey, I will give you the power to, 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 to perform in your life that thing that you say that you can't. You say, there's a withered sense of others in my life. I've become so self-absorbed and self-consumed that I can't even see another face anymore. It's all about me. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand because if I've called you to love one another, then I'm able to perform in your life that thing that I've called you to do and you can stretch it out. You say that there's a withered hand in my marriage. There's a withered parenting. There's a withered family, a withered household, whatever it is. 
If Jesus looks at you and he says, stretch out your hand, then he's able to perform that which needs to happen. Well, this man does it and he finds healing. But notice the reaction of the Pharisees. It says that they were filled with madness. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine we're sitting here tonight and we see a crippled man get healed and there's a group of religious people among us that are enraged by the fact that a man has just been healed. It reminds me of the man who was looking at dogs before a dog race and he was choosing which one he was going to put his money on, place his bet. And as he came to one of the cages and he looked at a particular greyhound, the dog looked up at him and said, I've won every race I've ever raced in before. You should put all your money on me. And the man looked at the dog with eyes wide open and he said, oh my goodness, a talking dog. I've got to have that dog. I'll make millions. He's priceless. And so he sought out the owner of that dog and he finally found him and he said, sir, I'll give you $1,000 for that dog if I could have him right now. And the man said, that dog, that old thing, you wouldn't want that dog. That dog's not worth $100. Are you kidding me? I'll give you $1,000 right now. I'll pay for it. He goes, why wouldn't I want that dog? The man said, because that dog's a liar. He's never won a single race in his life. (laughs) It's exactly what was taking place with the Pharisees in this instance right here. There's a man in their midst that has power to bring healing to whatever need that a person has. There's a man that's standing there in their midst that has power to cleanse sin. There's a man in their midst, standing right now, who can take a palsied man who has to be lowered in a room by his four friends because he can't go anywhere on his own and his entire identity has been wrapped up in that he goes where he's carried and that's all he ever will be. And Jesus is able to call that man to stand and to take up his bed and to live his own life for the first time in his existence. They're standing in the presence of a man who could look at someone who's worn the identity of everything that everyone else has ever placed upon him. You're a liar. You're a cheater. You're you're a corroborator with Rome. You're worthless. You're not worth the Israelite blood that's in you. And Jesus can look into the heart of that man and he can make that man what God only intended that man to be. He's a man who can look at the withered area of any life and he can say, stretch it out and he can make it as whole as the others. And yet the religious people that are so concerned with their religious system and establishment are filled with madness because of what he's doing. May we never become those people that overlook who Jesus is and what Jesus can do in a life because we're so bent on our religious tradition and keeping Jesus in the box that we have made him for. Jesus cares about people. And that's what we see him doing in this chapter, in this segment. Next week we'll pick up as Jesus continues now and shifts gears calling the the apostles and then uh, beginning to preach. So why don't we pray together tonight? Father, we thank you so much for the word that you've spoken to us tonight as we've heard these things set forth in this chapter. And Lord, it's our great desire that we would know who you are above the form and tradition of church and all that it entails. Lord, our desire is that we would know you. We know, Lord, that the Sabbath was not made for man, but man was made for the Sabbath and that you care infinitely more about us than you do about traditions that we would keep. And so, Lord, may all of those things right now fall off our backs, and may we trade them in that we might know you. And so, Lord, that's our prayer tonight, is that Jesus 
we could leave all, that we could follow you, and that our whole life would be consumed as you are an all-consuming fire. So we're asking, Lord, that you would send us forth with your power tonight, that you'd send us forth knowing, Lord, that you love us unconditionally and that nothing will compromise or change that love. Help us to know you more. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen.